0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Foundations here at Hickory Grove. Come on in, find a seat, join us. So good to have you. I'm I'm actually a a little encouraged to see folks come back considering our subject matter. When I uh, selected all of these Foundation seminars, by the way, that's my job. So I, I choose all of these for both me and Clint, and I did this, you know, I guess a year ago at this point. When it came time to start teaching on world religion, I'm like, what was I thinking when I picked that. I I probably was sleep-deprived because this has not been easy. There are some world religions that, as you might expect, I'm pretty well familiar with. As a Christian pastor, it's no shock that I would know Judaism. Judaism is part and parcel of Christianity. They just get it terribly wrong at Jesus. Islam is so strangely connected to Christianity that Just by study, you end up being quite familiar with the Abrahamic roots of that faith. But tonight, and next week, and the week thereafter, we are going to start turning a page to some world religions that you know, you've heard of all three of these, but I trust the vast majority in this room aren't terribly familiar with. You, You probably just have, for lack of a better word, caricatures of these religions, And tonight, I'm going to address the first of these three non-Abrahamic religions. These have, I mean, almost no parallel to Christianity, but I trust you've heard of them. How many of you tonight, by show of hands, uh, have heard of or are generally speaking familiar with the world-renowned religion known as Hinduism? That'll be our subject tonight. Next week, we will address a closely related and somewhat newer religion to Hinduism. How many of you, by show of hands, are familiar with the religion known as Buddhism? That'll be next week. And then the third and final week, this is kind of a catch-all, but it is probably the most appropriate term to describe this host of other religions. Our final week of study, we're going to address what, for lack of a better word, we're gonna call New Ageism. Because there are so many things coming into your house through your television, through your internet that, for lack of a better word, could be described as New Ages, and that'll be our final week of study. Tonight, Hinduism. How many of you, by a show of hands, would say, eh, I'm fairly familiar with it? Okay, we got a couple. How many of you would say, Kyler, I, I know like next to nothing about it? You're in good company. This is one of those subjects that I had to do some study to, to slice and dice it up tonight for you guys. So tonight... As we study Hinduism, let's ask the Lord to give us clear eyes, a clear mind, so that, remember, what's the point of this study? Foundations exist to equip you. It's supposed to be a foundation for your faith, so that when you encounter, as you surely will, if you have not already, those that come from a Hindu background, those that adhere to a Hindu faith, you'll know what you believe what they believe, why you believe it, why they believe it, and then you will be better equipped to bring the hope that you have to them, meet them, so to speak, where they are. That'll be our intent tonight. So why don't you join me as we pray? We'll ask God to help us, and then we'll begin our study tonight of Hinduism. Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would grant me clarity. This is obviously outside of my typical MO, I'm a preacher, I want to proclaim your word, and this is a totally different method, a totally different subject matter, so I'm asking that I be faithful, true, that Christ would be honored, and that your saints would be built up as we we study uh, that which has led so many astray, and I'm asking this in Jesus' name, amen. Now I wonder, tonight, uh, this is the question I began with last week, I think it's a good question to ask, how many of you, well, just think of it this way, When, when you think of Hinduism, you just hear that word. What, what comes into your mind? What do you associate with this faith? Many gods. If you heard, there's like 300 million of them. What do you hear? What do you think? They don't eat cows. Yeah, there's that. What do they do with the cows? They don't eat them and they like revere them and worship them. What's going on there? You may think of some people. You, you may think of like the name Gandhi. Gandhi, you connect with it. Or maybe Deepak Chopra, you see that guy on like Oprah or something. What do you do with that? Or, or maybe you think of the holiday Diwali. You ever heard of that? Sometimes it shows up. It shows up automatically for whatever reason on my computer calendar, it's usually mid-October to mid-November. Uh, maybe you think of like some of those Hindu temples. Any of you guys ever seen the 1979 war epic Apocalypse Now? If you watch that movie, it all kind of centers around this Hindu temple, this most stark imagery, and you're thinking, man, this is so otherworldly. Maybe you just think in general about the Indian culture, those who live in the region we know as India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that, that general region, maybe Sri Lanka, that's where your mind goes. Or perhaps you've even heard some of the odd names Have any of you ever, by show of hands, ever heard of the Hindu gods by the name of Krishna? Or have you ever heard of Vishnu or Brahma? You ever heard any of these names before? Maybe that's where your mind goes. Or perhaps visually, you can't help but think about the red dot that you see so often between the eyes of somebody who practices Hinduism, which, by the way, called a Bindi, and that little dot is, uh, generally speaking, kind of referred to as a third eye your two eyes look out to the outward material world. This is an eye that looks within to the God reality within. It's, it's almost a reminder, not for all, but generally speaking, it serves as a reminder that there's a God consciousness. You are before the presence of this pantheon of gods. It's an odd thing. Maybe that's where your mind goes. Or, or I bet most of you, when you think Hinduism, you can't help but have your mind be drawn to yoga yoga, yoga, yoga. is so common. Some of you may in fact practice it. We're going to talk a little bit about yoga and its Hindu roots tonight. Maybe transcendental meditation. You ever heard of that? Or karma. Man, karma is thrown around a lot. Some of you have may even thrown around what well, goes around comes around. That's karma. And that has deep Hindu roots. Tonight, we're going to try to blow some of the fog away. Because Candidly, we, as I've already mentioned, tend to view these religions that are so culturally apart from us. We tend to view them in terms of a caricature. We, we don't know really what's going on. It just feels so foreign that the thought of a Hindu temple might seem to you like, I don't know, maybe uh, a Masonic lodge. You don't know what's going on behind those walls. You have no idea. You probably bump shoulders with them in work. They're normal people, but you don't know what's going on behind there. And you're wondering, what is Hinduism. I'm going to try to bring some clarity, and here's why this is critical. There's a whole host of religions we could discuss tonight. Why have I chosen, in addition to Islam and Judaism, why have I chosen Hinduism? Well, did you realize that Hinduism is the third largest religion in the world? It is third behind Christianity, which is number one. Some 2.1 billion people claim To be Christians, that's 31.5% of human population. In addition, Islam is the second largest, claiming 1.3 billion followers, that's roughly 23% of the population. But Hinduism comes in at third. Estimates are between 900 million and 1 billion individuals follow this so-called religion. Its size is massive. It bears our study. What's also interesting about Hinduism, unlike Christianity and Islam, is is its scope. Because Hinduism is not just religion merely. I, I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's fair to say that Hinduism is culture. Hinduism extends into the very culture of India. You could almost go so far as to say Hinduism is, generally speaking, Indian culture, You think of all the different practices that you're familiar with, yoga and meditation. Did you know a lot of veganism and vegetarianism are part and parcel of this Hindu culture? It's influenced great world religions like Buddhism and Sikhism and Jainism. Uh, Some of you may even be familiar with some of these Eastern medicinal healings. Y'all ever heard of like the Reiki healers? Sometimes you see that at like a a place where you could get a massage or something. Or some of these other a strange kind of Eastern medicine healings. They're, they're rooted in, in Hinduism. But what makes this religion really complicated, and candidly what's making my job tough tonight, and I have a feeling that after it's all said and done, and I've put a lot of hours into trying to slice and dice this up for you all, I still think that after this is over, you all are going to spit it out of your mouth at my feet tonight and think, preacher, I didn't know what you were saying. <laughs> and here's the good news. I don't know what I'm saying either. <laughs> Because Hinduism is candidly very ambiguous. As a religion, it is the most unclear, bizarre, anything-goes religion that it is kind of hard to put it in a box. I'm going to try to do the best job I can. There are some boundaries. I'm going to draw those boundaries for you. But realize For every given Hindu, there's probably a different version of Hinduism. So that means there might be 900 900 million different flavors of this because it is a very broad kind of cultural, philosophical, worldview practice that believes in divinity. So tonight, let's address this subject the way we did our last two weeks. I want to address it through these five questions. Let's ask, where did Hinduism come from? We'll, We'll address its history briefly. Then we're going to ask, well, what's the authority behind it? Do they have any books? We'll look at some of Hinduism's scriptures, so to speak. What do they believe? That's critical. We need to know what exactly Hinduism teaches. We'll look at some of their theology. How do they practice? What are some distinctives going on in their practice? We'll, we'll look at that. And then lastly, we're going to end our study by applying the gospel to it. How can you take the hope you have and apply it particularly A Hindu believer. So let's begin where we ought to. Where did this even come from? If you recall last week, I spun a tale for you. I I love doing that. I love being able to step in front of the pulpit and kind of draw a narrative arc to help you guys kind of get a grip behind the story. Here's the unfortunate thing (laughs) there's not a great story behind Hinduism. There there really isn't an agreed upon narrative. I'm going to give you kind of the most salient agreed upon points but it doesn't make for a great story. I already mentioned, what's the geographic region of the world most associated with Hinduism? India. There's a reason. Because 90% of Hindus live in India today, and it's where it began. So let's go back several thousand years ago. Let's go back a couple thousand years before the first coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. Roughly 2000 B.C. And let's go to the region of modern-day Pakistan, India border. There's a river that's there to this day, the Indus River. It creates a valley that largely dominates modern-day Pakistan and that border with India. It's called the Indus Valley. If you follow historians, historians will say there was an ancient civilization of people groups called the Indus Valley civilizations. They reflected what you might be familiar with in the Bible. Do you recall when you study the Philistines or the Canaanites or all the Ites and Ivites that you see in the Old Testament, they all basically worshipped this pantheon of idols, all these random gods. They often worshipped fertility gods. They basically did bizarre, unusual, typically sexual acts to try to get a god to provide crops. So you would often see cult prostitutes. You would often see worship of these idols thinking that if they do X, Y, or Z, then the gods will bring the rain and give them food and they'll survive. This was common in this Indus Valley. They were worshiping this polytheistic. That means multiple gods. There were all kinds of gods. We are monotheistic. One god. A polytheistic individual worships multiple gods. It was common, like the Canaanites, in this era. By the way, this isn't scientifically verifiable, but from a Christian perspective, there's a lot of inclination to believe that in Genesis 10 and 11, when Noah's family was spread out over the face of the earth, Noah had some sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and one of his sons had a son who had a son named Joktan. And in Genesis 10 and verse 30, it says that Joktan and his sons went off to the east. There's a lot that speculate that Joktan was the individual from which many peoples of that region would have come. No way to verify that. You can overstate that, I will grant you. But it's not a surprise to think that the same seed of idolatry that was rooted in some of other of Noah's uh, sons, in the land of Canaan would have followed down into India which would have yielded this people group, the Indus Valley people worshiping their polytheistic pantheon of gods. But we have no history of them, nothing. All of this is speculative until a group of people from the north around the year 1500 BC comes in and conquers. Modern day, that would be a people that lived in modern day Iran Or are you familiar with the country, not the state, the country called Georgia, uh, that's in a mountainous region near Iran. Azerbaijan, you may have heard of that nation. There was a people group. They actually referred to themselves as Aryans, interestingly enough. And this Aryan group of people comes in from the north and conquers the tribes that were worshiping all of their gods in the Indus Valley. Well, this group brought with them uh, a culture that had literature They themselves were polytheistic, and since they were now in charge, they began to enforce upon the people of the Indus Valley their religious views and began to write it down. And as they began to write down what they believed about all these false gods, it developed into what you might call pantheism. Do you know what the difference is between polytheism and pantheism? Monotheism, of course, is what we believe. There is one God. Polytheism means there's a lot of gods. Pantheism means everything is a god. Everything. There's not 300 million gods. There's 300 quadrillion because literally everything is. Stars are God. The moon is God. Rocks are God. You are God. The ant is God. All is God. God is all. It's like the force in Star Wars. All is God. They began to teach this pantheistic view of divinity, and they wrote it down and they began to write it down in these books these collections of writing in the sanskrit language and those books became known as the vedas anybody ever heard of the phrase veda v e d a this is the holy predominant text for hindus now where did the name hindu come from strangely enough hindu for lack of a better word, is basically another word for people of the Indus Valley. Hindu actually was a a transliteration of sorts of a Sanskrit word that meant Indus Valley. So a Hindu wasn't really a worshiper per se, it was a person that lived in the Indus Valley and over time it began to be applied to the religious cultural practices of those that lived in that valley. So I think you're already tracking with me that this religion began a whole lot different than the others. Christianity was by revelation from God. Islam was purportedly by a revelation of Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad. But it appears that what we're studying, Hinduism, is basically some cultural phenomenon amongst a polytheistic, pantheistic people group of ancient India that kind of developed over time and began to write down some things in some books. That is actually true. As those books began to be written and developed, it started to take on a life of its own and there's a word you could use to describe what Hinduism developed into. You've probably never heard it before, but it's a precise way to describe Hinduism as it develops. It was no longer merely polytheistic or pantheistic. You might call it Brahmanism because at its core, this religion basically started to teach that there was a God force, kind of like Star Wars, the force is with you that pervaded all things. I could as I was studying this, I could just hear Obi-Wan Kenobi telling the same thing to Luke Skywalker that it's the force that you feel through it all. And they called this singular force, this god reality that pervades all reality. They called it the Brahman, which is why we call it Brahmanism. More on that in a moment. Hinduism as it developed through the Indian culture over the years, has kind of developed into a host of Eastern religions that you are generally aware of today. And and today, in particular, we are familiar with Hinduism because, as India has self-attested, one of their greatest exports is their own citizens. They've had a mass migration of Indian uh, citizens that have joined countries all around the world, including the United States. And it's no shock that if... Hinduism is part and parcel of your culture. It, it actually, like, is your culture. Well, it's not a shock that that culture's coming with you. I mean, how many of you guys, when you got married, just totally left your culture uh, at home, and then when you got married? That's not true. That's why we have marriage classes. That's why I do marriage counseling all the time, because there's two cultures that come together. you got to figure out how to make them get wedded. This is what happened with a lot of these Hindus that have brought their Hindu-Indian culture to other cultures like the United States, and we have began to be exposed to several facets of, facets of it. Interestingly enough, Hindu culture has become predominant today. There are, there are famous individuals that subscribe to it. Did you guys know Julia Roberts has self-identified, I don't know if she does this moment, but she has historically self-identified as a Hindu, a, a most notable actress in our day and time. There is kind of the broad brushstroke backstory behind Hinduism. It's not a great tale to tell, but let's try to at least put a little finer point on it now. And what is actually going on here? What's going on in the culture? What do they believe? Why do they believe it? Let's try to get a little bit of information here. So let's begin with their scripture. I I mentioned the Vedas, V-E-D-A-S. That is a collection of this old Sanskrit wisdom literature. There's mainly four books, and they were orally passed down over the years. This is far before the time of Christ. This would have been roughly the time of King David and whatnot. They were all collated together, and there is one edition of them. It's kind of a, for lack of a better word, a sequel to the Vedas called the Upanishads. These books, they're probably even more influential. They kind of philosophically synthesize everything that was written in these Veda books. They're very commonly referred to in Hinduism today, and I bet many of you in this room, how many by show of hands, have heard of the Bhagavad Gita? Anybody ever heard of that before? That's kind of in, oh, I'm not seeing anybody's hands. Okay, interesting. It is actually a more commonly uh, mentioned book that you'll hear in pop culture today. It's very commonly referenced in college classrooms today. It's like the 700 verse epic poem called The Beautiful Song of God, kind of an odd little book. Uh, These are the major texts underlying Hinduism today. That doesn't tell us much though, What actually do these folks believe? Let's try to piece together what actual beliefs undergird the whole cultural notion called Hinduism. Well, I gave you a little taste when I described Hinduism as Brahmanism. Because one central facet of Hinduism is that there is an impersonal God has no attributes No gender, it is just a force, so to speak, that pervades everything. They call this the Brahmin. The Brahmin pervades all reality. Like I've said now a few times, I really know, know no better analogy than the force in Star Wars. It's just in all, be all, through all. They believe in this impersonal God, but at the same time, they believe in a multitude of gods. 300-some-odd million different gods in the Hindu uh, pantheon. But there are a few that stand out above the rest. Did you know that Hinduism has a trinity of sorts? They call it the Trimurti. And this trinity, these three most significant gods, are the ones that are most common and most often worshipped or followed. One is kind of confusingly called Brahma, not Brahmin, but Brahma, just M-A, he is the creator god. And like all the gods of, that bi- of uh, the world religions, he's married. Because basically all these idols are nothing more than a reflection of mankind. He's married to a lady named Saraswati, or a goddess, I should say, Saraswati. And then there's another god named Vishnu. Anybody ever heard of Vishnu before? Somewhat familiar word. That is the preserver god. And he's married to Lakshmi. And then there is the third and final god of this trinity called Shiva, who is the destroyer god, married to Parvati. These are the kind of the trinity, so to speak, of the Hindu gods. Now, you want to know what's wild about these gods? If that's confusing, it gets more so. Because they also believe that these gods are like transformers, that they can morph into different identities that they call avatars. Hmm, Y'all familiar with the movie Avatar? It's a Hindu concept. They believe that these gods can basically present themselves in various mystical material incarnations as different gods. So for example, perhaps the most famous avatar of the god Vishnu is the god Krishna. Some of you may have heard of Hare Krishna as an actual like subset of Hinduism, a more common uh, religious practice in the United States. It is connected to this avatar. It's the eighth avatar, actually, of the god Vishnu. Look at the next avatar. Now you're going to see the link between tonight and next week. The ninth avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu is Gautama Buddha. What does that remind you of? This is Buddhism. Buddhism is connected through this dotted line to Hinduism. Pretty odd, is it not? Now, let's start getting to the nuts and bolts of their theology. What does Hinduism believe about you and me? Well, Hinduism believes this, that you are in essence a soul, or maybe a better word would be a self, and this soul or self. They call it the Atman. This soul or self is immortal. It's not created. And it's never going to die. It is going to, when you physically die, your soul will just take home in a new body. It will go from uh, life form to life form, but it's never going to end. It's like your consciousness. And here's what's interesting. They don't believe just humans have Atman's. They believe all living creatures have Atman's, which is why it's not uncommon for Hindus to practice vegetarianism or veganism or to exalt in cows, by the way. Cows, part of their cultural legacy would be that the cow was a most valued uh, part of the animal kingdom. It was a great source of of a lot, and there's some cultural downstream. There's a lot of cultural reverence for cattle. The Atman is this soul or self that is perpetual. So now what does that mean? Let's just tease out the notion that they were right about this. So then what happens when you die? If your soul is lasting forever and there's not a creator God who's going to bring you to heaven, what happens to that Atman? Herein lies the nuts and bolts of Hinduism. Hinduism believes that when you die... You will be reincarnated. They call this samsara. You will be reincarnated or rebirthed into another life form. So when you die, you're just going to become something else. You might become a richer, better version of you. You might become a slug. You might become a fox. You might become, you know, another nationality. You're going to become something. So how does that work? Is it by chance? How do you, is there anything you can do in this life to influence what you're going to be reincarnated in in the next life? And they believe there is. They call it karma. Karma is kind of their closest conception to sin and righteousness. So they don't really believe in sin. In Hinduism, the notion of karma is that what goes around comes around. It's this law of cause and effect, that everything you do in this life is going to have a reaction or a consequence in this life or the life to come. So if you do a lot of good things in this life, karma dictates that in the next life you're going to have a better reincarnated version of you. But if you don't, you're going to have a poorer one. So what's the motivation to do good under this Hindu worldview? It's if you do good things, karma means you're going to have a better shot at your next life. Now, this could happen endlessly. You could have 10,000 lives. They believe that according to karma, I mean, according to samsara or reincarnation, you're just going to keep going and keep going. Now, some of you are like, that sounds horrible. Like just endlessly again and again, but their, their theology, so to speak, is pointed somewhere. They actually have their own twisted, skewed view of redemption. They believe that in this circular, circular, uh, cyclical process of reincarnation, if you keep doing good karma things and keep getting reincarnated into better forms in the next life, eventually you are going to reach the finish line. They call this finish line moksha. And moksha is what we might call salvation. It is you finally getting freed from the cycle of reincarnation. There's an illustration they use that's probably the best way to describe it because you're thinking, all right, well, pastor, in R, in Christianity, salvation is what? It's heaven. Like you, you're standing before God. What is salvation for them? They, they use an illustration. It's like a drop of water being dropped into an ocean. Well, a drop of water and ocean is both water. The ocean is the godness that pervades everything. You are the little drop of water. Remember, you're divine. Everything is divine. And when you get saved, so to speak, you reach moksha. You're no longer suffering in this circle of life. You're like a drop of water that gets dropped into the ocean of divinity. And at last, you are one with the Brahman. You are at last fully experiencing God. You get what they call nirvana. You ever heard of nirvana? Not the band. Nirvana, you are experiencing this profound peace of mind acquired in salvation. Now, how do you get there? How do you, like, what sort of ways can you get good karma? How do, you, how do you get yourself through this process to moksha? There's at least three predominant ways to get there. One is called dharma. This is perhaps the most important. Dharma is you can get to moksha by good works. So you can obey the rules. You cannot eat the certain foods and eat the right foods, follow all the social obligations of society, practice all the religious deals. Those good works are how you can get saved. They call this dharma. Dharma is also this mindset that pervades India. You may see it somewhat uh, mirrored in like uh, English society. If you ever noticed, if you ever watch... You know, like any documentaries or anything about the monarchy in England, you'll notice that one thing that marked Queen Elizabeth was a profound sense of duty, a sense of duty that maybe was reflected in your parents' generation that you admire, the greatest generation or baby boomer generation that just seemed to have more of a sense of duty than generations do today. There was a similar uh, cultural notion in India, in Hindu culture, called dharma, which was you have a duty or a proper behavior. You have a lot in life. You need to play according to the rules of your lot in life. Don't try to push the envelope. If you do, that's sinning, so to speak. You, You need to do what's expected of you, proper, right, good, upstanding behavior. Basically the opposite of the revolutionary spirit of an American today. This is the way you can get saved through these good works. But there's two other ways. Uh, Another way you can kind of escape this cycle of reincarnation and reach moksha, be saved, is through what they might call nyanyanya. Nyanyanya. This is uh, this uh, salvation by knowledge or meditation. This would be like figuring out how to renounce yourself, get humility, or... It might even include yoga, where you're trying to get self-control over yourself. These are considered good things that can help you break free from reincarnation. And then there's a third one called bhakti, and this is basically you can get saved by being really devoted. This is probably the most popular in Hinduism, and that would be worshipping some of the 330 million gods or goddesses. Most people, by the way, worship Vishnu and Shiva, just so you know it could just be doing the little worshipful acts. Any of those three ways are going to help you escape samsara, this reincarnation cycle, and at last reach moksha, where you will taste and see nirvana. This is kind of the theology, so to speak, of Hinduism. Now, how do they function, practice this? What, what actually does this look like? Let's look at just a few items to kind of describe what is functionally Hinduism. On the one hand, Hinduism has, as kind of a core doctrine, they have this idea, this worldview, this mindset, that there are four objectives in life. Purushartha. Purusha is human. Artha is purpose. This purpose for a human. Four main purposes humans have in life. You're going to notice the first word, dharma. That is, in other words, you need to be a moral person, Mark down morality to one of the great purposes in Hindu life is you've got to have good behavior. You've got to respect the duty you have in life. This is perhaps the most important of them. But they also have this value, what they call artha, which is prosperity. You should take seriously your means of living. A purpose in life is to provide for your family, to enjoy the material benefits of this world. Another one is kama, or pleasure an aesthetic enjoyment of life uh, i mean forgive me i don't mean to be crass in this room but most people are generally familiar because it's within the wider cultural ethos of america to be familiar with what's called kama sutra which is you know a fairly explicit sexual book related to Hinduism, but this is referring to the pleasure that they view to be a significant central facet of Hindu life. You should pursue kama, or this pleasure, aesthetic enjoyment of life. And then lastly, as you might expect, the most critical of them all... One great purpose in life is to achieve moksha or to be saved, liberated, freed from all the cycles of suffering in your reincarnated life. Now, how do you go about achieving these purposes? How do you do it? You guys might be shocked to know that a main objective in a Hindu life is for, I'm gonna say this word and you're gonna be like, what? And that is not what I mean, yoga. And I do not mean stretches and um. I'm not talking about that. Yoga, in the general vernacular, is referring to what we might call a spiritual discipline. Yoga, as a broad generalization in Hinduism, is a ritual practice, often involving physical, spiritual, and mental components, all of which lead you to salvation. Let me give you four different types of yoga, and one of them you're going to recognize. The others you probably had no idea existed. One of them is called karma yoga. This is basically working or doing devotional works. It's doing good stuff. If you do good without any expectation of return, this is a spiritual discipline in the Hindu life. So be a do-gooder and don't expect people to pay you back for it. And that is a good spiritual practice that is helping you achieve one of your key objectives in life. Funny, don't you see that as a common ethos of our day? Where people are trying to paint morality as just do good. If you just do good, you'll be good and good will come back to you. Hmm. It's interesting how Hindu theology has permeated our culture. Another kind of yoga, so to speak, is bhakti yoga, which you might describe as not the path of work, but the path of love. In other words, you need to be humble, you need to surrender, you need to pray or chant or repeat stuff, mantras. You ever heard of the phrase mantra, where you just kind of utter the same thing over and over and over and over and over again? By the way, that's why there's a lot of criticism today of Christian worship songs, and I think to a degree, rightly so, that are unnecessarily repetitive. Perhaps you're familiar with some more charismatic church backgrounds, where there'll be a song Man, you're like, dear mercy, this song is lasting eight minutes, and they are like saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. Now, forgive me. I believe we're going to sing some stuff over and over again in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. They're going to say it a lot. So I'm not saying it's inherently evil. But what's interesting is there's been a lot of studies done describing the Hindu uh, influence on some modern Christian worship movements that basically get people into this... um, zone for or a trance it's like a mantra where you're repeating it over and over and over again and it almost hypnotizes people to a degree where if you've watched just go youtube some of these crazy services and you're like these are like normal people that work at bank of america and they're barking like dogs and like what is going on here i don't get this this is odd is that christianity because if that's christianity why do we not see that at hickory grove thank the lord we don't see that at hickory grove what is that it's odd, and I think there's some interesting influences of Hinduism, I would describe it as demonic, that have pervaded some uh, sectors of even Christianity. Satan is a wily devil, and he will use any uh, crack in the door he can to get his foot in. The path of love is where you're doing these prayers, or chants, or mantras, or rituals. But then that leads us to the uh, third one, nyanya <laughs> I love saying that word, uh, yoga, which is the path of knowledge. This would be bookish, philosophical. You need to learn right stuff. Go listen to lectures. Read a good book. Learn things. Know what Hindu philosophy teaches. Niyana. If you can learn this stuff, that's going to help you get on the right path. Now, here's the fourth and final that I think you might recognize. You never knew it was called Raja, Yoga, but this is the path of meditation, a mystical approach to spiritual disciplines. This is mind control. And part of the effort to control your mind is to control your body physically, your respiration rate. And so part of raja yoga to control your mind is to do certain physical postures that will help you control your mind. Thus, the advent of what has become, honestly, a pretty difficult. If you've ever done it, I've done like I don't do this often, but I have done some like yoga type, uh, like I know how to do downward dog, if any of y'all know how to do that. I've learned some of the different yoga poses, and they're not easy. I mean, it's funny how you're just like standing there in a weird pose, and all of a sudden you feel out of breath. It, it's hard. It's, I understand why people think it can be a good exercise, but it's actually pretty odd how many uh, pantheistic, polytheistic, Hinduistic uh, beliefs underlie the notion of yoga, Raja Yoga is this mindset that you need to do all these physical poses to figure out how to uh, control who you are, which is why if you are in an unabashed... So by the way, I, I do think there are like yoga groups that stay away from the um and all the crazy mind control stuff. I, I get that. But if you're in one that's unabashed about it and does it, you need to understand that there's actually some some pretty demonic stuff underlying that. There is actually a mindset that is... You can control who you are, the godness within you. You can channel the Brahman, so to speak, within you if you just can learn to control your mind. This is what's called Raja Yoga. Now, perhaps the most distinguishing mark of Hinduism in the Indian culture, it pervades every aspect of the society is one that you're probably vaguely familiar with. How many of you, by show of hands, would admit that you are familiar that one cultural phenomenon in India historically has been what's called the caste system or a social hierarchy. They call this the Varna. And the Varna is this belief, part and parcel of Hinduism, that there are castes of society. Now let's stop for a second. Everybody needs to take a step back because we're all Americans. And what is the great proverb of America? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can go from rags to riches if you just work hard. Praise God that we live in this country. I, had, I come from a great-grandfather who immigrated from Spain, escaping a war in the early 20th century. He came as a 16-year-old by himself, slept on a park bench in Central Park for a month before he got on a train, made his way to St. Louis, Missouri, where he met my great-grandmother, got married, worked in impoverished wages, and ended up having a son who had a son who had me, and I have lived an upper-middle-class American life since that time because of hard work. Praise God for it. In the Indian culture, you gotta remember something. What is a core value in Hinduism? What is a core belief? Do you remember what I described as dharma? The view that you have a duty to respect your lot in life. There is a proper behavior for how you were born. This underlies the caste system because there is a belief that what you are born into is what you are and you ought not leave it. This is who you are. It's your reincarnated existence. And you need to respect it and to attempt to get away from it, to move up the ladder, so to speak, is, for lack of a better word, sinful. It's going to bring about bad karma on you. You, you need to focus on your lot. So let's describe what are those castes? The f- top of the list, no surprise, it's similar. Don't mistake me when I say Brahmin. Did you all notice there's a spelling change? It's not Brahman, M-A-N, it's Brahmin, M-I-N. It's kind of confusing in Hinduism, but there's Brahma, he is the creator god. Brahman, M-A-N, that is the godness that pervades everything. And then Brahmin, M-I-N, that refers to the leaders or the highest caste in the Indian culture, like the scholars or the priests or the great teachers. Perhaps you've even heard of a Brahmin, so to speak. One of those great Hindu leaders. And then the next one is Kshatriya. Kshatriya. Man, I am proud of myself for pronouncing that. Kshatriya. That is the second class of the social hierarchy. They are like the rulers or the administrators or the warriors of the society. And then there's the Vaishyas. Uh, this is a group that's like farmers and merchants, just general agriculturalists of the society. The lower level would be the shudras, servants or laborers. Now in India, they usually end it there. They say there's four castes and the fifth one is so low they don't even recognize it. The Dalits or Dalits, these groups at the end, this fifth and final caste is so low that they call them the untouchables. These are the outcasts of society. Now, you need to understand that part of the whole Hindu subculture is reincarnation can get you out of that caste into a new one in the next life, but you are not going to be able to escape it in this life. And karma dictates that you must respect dharma and do what duty demands of you within that caste. Doesn't that seem like an awfully uh, religiously abusive, manipulative way to keep people in their place? and to keep other people in their place. It's a pretty sick uh, way to think about society. This is what's called the, d- the varna. Now, how do they worship? Let's talk very briefly just about general Hindu worship. There's several words to describe it. I'm simplifying it dramatically, but for lack of a better word, puja, P-U-G- P-U-G-A, is a good summary statement for the worshipful, respecting, homage paid to gods. Uh, it typically involves all five senses you're going to often see prayers that light a lamp maybe burn some incense make offering typically a fruit or flowers they may even ring a bell to one of their gods or many of their gods most often it's Vishnu or Shivi but it could be others as well and then some of you may be familiar with the holiday Diwali I mentioned that earlier I'm embarrassed to say I've was first really made familiar with Diwali through the sitcom, The Office. (laughs) Anybody ever seen that episode that focuses on Diwali? I'm ashamed to even admit that out loud, but it's a stinking hilarious show. And in this, Uh, episode, it's this festival of lights that honors one of their gods called Lakshmi, this goddess of wealth and good fortune. You'll see it celebrated today in our culture. It's typically uh, mid-October to mid-November, lasts roughly a week or so, and you'll often see these little tiny earthenware lamps with oil with little lights lit, and they do it right when there's no moon, there's no light outside, and it's to invite the goddess to come to this light and to give them good wealth and whatnot. That's a significant holiday. There's others, but that's probably the most noted. And then just one last thing I want to point out is how many of y'all have ever heard of a guru? (laughs) We actually use that word so much that you may not even associate it with Hinduism anymore. You may be like, you know, Kyler, you're a guru on the Old Testament. Don't call me that (laughs) because a guru has a Hindu root. It is a personal spiritual teacher or guide. Literally means a dispeller of darkness. My friends, I'm afraid that all I have done tonight is take what was muddy and like pour like maybe a gallon of water in it to kind of water it down a little, but it's still murky. I understand that. It's murky in my mind. You know, there's an old preacher adage. There's one thing I actually tell myself this every Sunday I preach. If there's mist in the pulpit, there's going to be fog in the pew. It's a good reminder to me that if I'm misty about anything... I am going to bring a lot of fog in my room that I'm preaching to. So I try to get as clear in my head as I know how. That's why, just the way I'm wired, that's why I typically preach without notes. You guys typically see me walk around? It's because I try to prepare in such a way that I know it that I don't have to look at something or remember what I'm saying. I think I communicate clearer that way. The problem with this is there's fog in this pulpit. So there's just like dense thunderstorm clouds in these pews, I I trust. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Hinduism is a little odd. It is, in other words, kind of an anything goes. You want to know what's really interesting about Hinduism? One of their core values is that what's good for you is good for you. One of their core tenets is any god goes. Do you want to know what's one of their 330 million gods that they're cool with? Jesus. That's a god. Sounds good. That works for you. Muhammad, okay, works for me. Any of these gods are good. Hinduism is an odd thing. It's actually this worldview. I wonder how many of you have heard this before. I wonder how many of you have a relative that would say this and you had no idea of its Hindu roots. There's many roads that lead to God. You're just looking at one side of the mountain. This is the path you're taking, but there's a road on the backside. Why not take that road too? One way or another, we're all getting to that God. That is a distinctly Hindu belief, that there are multiple ways to get to this God. So how do you bring the exclusive hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a worldview that so fits our day and time? Do you all realize Hinduism works really well with modern America? Do you know modern America is not nearly as atheistic as you might suspect? There's actually a a, a rise, I should say, of supernaturalism. People realize that an existence without the supernatural is a deeply disturbing, lonely uh, existence. They just want to reject, they suppress the truth, as Paul says in Romans 1. They don't want to hear that there is a God who is revealed right and wrong. So they create a pantheon of gods like the Canaanites and Philistines and Hindus of old and of today. Hinduism works really well because it allows cultural progressivism that basically says what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. It weds well with that because Hinduism really doesn't cause any fights. If it's good with you, it's good for you. It's good with me, it's good with me. Though what is kind of funny is everything's really self-defeating because like in Nepal, for example, where Mount uh, Everest is, Nepal, a distinctly Hindu nation, there's even legislation passed that basically like Outlaws certain things that aren't Hindu. So nobody's really all that tolerant and inclusive. Everybody's going to draw a line somewhere. How do you take the hope of the gospel to a people group like that? Because here's the, here's the tricky thing. If you know any Hindus personally, they're probably lovely, wonderful people. Great neighbors, sweet, kind, generous. A conversation would probably go well. They're, they're not going to be as militant as perhaps a more radicalized Muslim would be. They're going to be like, Jesus sounds great. That's wonderful. I'm glad that works for you. That, that probably would be their, their mindset. And it's going to be a fairly private affair. They're not going to do their five prayers a day on their mats like Muslims might or Christians that have got the cross hanging. They're probably going to just do a little bit of puja, worship privately in their home. They probably never go to temple. There's not even that many Muslim temples around. I mean, uh, uh, Hindu temples around. They're not going to go. It's very uncommon, honestly, for the average Hindu to go practice that if you're not in one of those Hindu nations. so They're just lovely people. How do you bring hope to that? I want to commend just a few reminders to you in conclusion. Let these just kind of sit and stir in your soul as you prayerfully consider how you might interact with a Hindu the Lord puts in your path. One is just to remember this. You need to show them, like, guys, let this, let this be a fire under you, a ballast for your boat. <laughs> you have a bigger God. You need to remember that though they claim to have this vast God, Brahman that pervades all, the force that is in all, be all, through all, ours is a much bigger, greater God. Just begin here. How impersonal is the Hindu God and how personal is the Christian God? You who you do not know, we know. Let us tell you, he who has revealed himself... Ours is a God who knows us and is knowable. He has attributes. He is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of peace, a God of power, a God of omniscience, a God of great wisdom. You can describe His justice. You can present a knowable God. You can, in other words, help your Hindu friends see that their God or pantheon of God, so to speak, is too small. That upon reflection, their Godhead is really just a mirror image of themselves. The gods of the Hindu pantheon, like the Roman pantheon and Greek pantheon of old, are of old, are basically just kind of idealized humans. Far from the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, presents himself in a much more majestic, splendor, wonderful, otherworldly way. Ours is a bigger God. And here's, I think, a, a critical missiological move you can make. You want to know what is interesting about Hindus? They they really like, generally speaking, holy texts. They, They like to read texts that speak of religious things. And so you can not only show them a bigger God, show them a more sure authority. Bring the Bible to them. They're probably going to be fascinated by it. And show them what it says. They may be open to it. Because then, general, they kind of have this generally inclusive view of it all and say, now let me show you the story arc of the Bible, that there is a creator, God, who made you, but for a particular reason. You have fallen from this reason. You have not done what your creator has called you to do. There is, in other words, a real concept of sin. There is a law God demands of us that you will never be able to fulfill. There's not enough karma in this life or 10,000 lives to ever earn your way to this, but praise be to God, he has done for you what you cannot by sending Jesus Christ his son, to live the life you could not live, to die the death that you deserve so that you don't have to be reincarnated. You will be resurrected from the dead. You can bring that news to them from the text. You have a surer authority. One particular thing you ought to emphasize is that you really do have a more realistic condition, a more realistic view of the human condition. What's odd about Hinduism is it doesn't take as seriously as many of these other religions just how jacked up people are. It doesn't really take into account that sin is real. You know, in Hinduism, sin is kind of an illusion because they believe the body is kind of an illusion. What's real, what's most real is the Atman or the soul, the self that is eternal. Everything else is just illusory. It's coming and going. You're going to go from one life to the next and you can help them Come back down to earth and say, hey, I know you were made by Yahweh. I know like this is within you. Y'all know God's law has been written to a degree in our hearts through the general revelation. So in other words, the fact that we live and breathe in this world means that every last one of us knows there's a maker and we know that we have fallen short of him. We may not know his name, we may hate his rules, but we know intuitively that there is something broken. You don't have to be taught it, you know it. And you can help them see what they already suspect, that there is a concept of sin and trying to find God within yourself as a fool. What a small God to look within. There is a much greater God. And so conclude... By giving them a much better hope. You do not have to save yourself. You cannot do enough works enough acts of devotion, enough loving acts, you can be reincarnated 10,000 lives over. But praise be to God, there is a way to reach the moksha, so to speak, that you so long for, the nirvana that you have inscribed. You all realize the Bible teaches that in every man, woman, and child is inscribed or is imprinted eternity. Eternity is written, engraved on our hearts. We are wired for this. We long for it intuitively. And you can say the nirvana you so long for is offered you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. There is hope for you. Your methodology of karma, of living uh, in such a way that hopefully you'll, you'll get one more step down the line and the next life, it's a fool's errand. Your, You can reach it today if you just trust exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then trust, my friends, that here's the good news. There's not a person in world history that has ever been saved by your eloquence. There's not a person in world history that has ever been saved by your intellect. The only way any man, woman, and child has ever been saved whether atheistic, agnostic, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, pagan, Baal worshippers, you name it. Every last one has been saved the same way. The Spirit of God doing what only it can do to open eyes, to see the hope of the gospel proclaimed through stammering, stuttering lips like yours and mine. Just be faithful, to share the hope you have and give the rest to God. You are seed planters. Y'all realize that, right? That's my only job. I have no power to cause seeds to grow. I just throw them on the soil. And some of you and I come behind and water it. But y'all, like you gardeners at home, know that there is no, nothing you can do to make that seed grow. You can do things to help make it conducive to grow. Till the soil, get better soil, get better water, tend to it, make sure the sun is just right. But at the end of the day, it is outside your power to cause that seed to germinate. So too, with the Spirit of God, He alone can cause that seed to germinate. So you do all you can, and then you lay your head on your pillow at night. You pray and realize your Hindu friend, your Buddhist friend, your Muslim friend, your spouse... Your uh, child, they cannot be saved by you. It is by God's grace alone. So we of all people ought to be a praying people. So we're going to end our time tonight by praying for whomever might be in your life, whether Hindu or otherwise, to see the hope that you and I have. And when we come back next week, we're going to look at a twin sister, so to speak, to Hinduism, what you know as Buddhism. Why don't you join me as we pray, and we'll call it a night. Dear Jesus. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. I pray this was, you know, relatively helpful. Anything I said that was unclear or unhelpful, Lord, I pray it'd be forgotten. For that which was edifying, I pray that you would root it in their hearts so that they would be bold, they would be prayer-filled, and they would bring the hope they have to any Hindu friends that cross their paths. Oh, Lord, I pray for our great awakening, the 900 million who are lost in the darkness that we see reflected in the Old Testament. Open their eyes to see that there is one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who reveals himself in the perfect, mysterious Trinity, the Godhead. And so we praise you, O God. We thank you, Jesus, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you guys next week.